Hi, this is Karen Westerfield, and I got my start as a makeup effects artist on Star Trek The Next Generation. After that, I jumped over to Deep Space Nine, and I also worked on Voyager and Enterprise. Also, I did a few Star Trek movies. On Deep Space Nine, I was known as Quark's Handmaiden, his main makeup artist. And you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Every actor we've ever spoken to here on this show has had to spend some time in the makeup chair. The only thing unique for each of those performers was the amount of time they spent sitting in that chair. For folks who were lucky, or in some cases unlucky enough to be playing an alien on a Star Trek show, depending on how you want to look at that, that can mean spending a few hours just sitting in that chair, being painted and having glue attached to your face. It's a very time-consuming process, and it is quite the artistic one as well. And today, we're speaking with one of the experts in that field, makeup artist Karen Westerfield. Karen is a multiple-time Emmy Award winner and nominee for Star Trek shows, as well as Alien Nation, The Enemy Within, and Lackawanna Blues. Her time in Star Trek began on the sixth motion picture and continued into The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. And as you heard at the top of the show, she was also Quark's main makeup person. Karen's also worked as a makeup artist on the special effects team in shows and films like Scrubs, Weeds, Alias, Iron Man, Pirates of the Caribbean 3, Beowulf, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Star Trek Nemesis, as we'll talk about today, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, Edward Scissorhands, and Batman Returns, How the Grinch Stole Christmas with Jim Carrey, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, and many, many, many more. Her IMDb page only cracks a little bit of the stuff that she's worked on. So we're going to have a lot of fun discussing that today, too, and finding out all the roles that, well, she's not necessarily known as well for because of that. Karen has a really fascinating tale to tell about how she got involved in the makeup industry, and it was quite an unexpected one for Karen, as you're about to find out. So get ready to hear some one-of-a-kind, behind-the-scenes stories from a real one-of-a-kind artist, Karen Westerfield. But before we jump into our interview, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? It's the best way to keep up to date on who's going to be the next guest on Trek Untold and to learn all about the other cool things that are happening here. So if you're on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, go ahead and look up Trek Untold, all one word, and give us a follow and a like. If you'd like to help support the show monetarily, go ahead and check out teespring.com stores slash Trek Untold to check out some of the merchandise we have available. This includes t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, sweatshirts, stickers, and a whole bunch more. So go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash Trek Untold. If you become a paid subscriber to Trek Untold, you'll get first access to the show and a chance to ask our guests questions on future episodes. But most of all, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it or watching it. And if you've already done that, please also leave a review and a rating if you can. Leaving ratings and reviews helps increase the visibility of podcasts on platforms like iTunes and other places like it. It shows that you're listening and that you like it, and that other people who are interested in the same subject are going to probably like it too. It helps us grow, it helps us get better guests, and it helps us keep bringing this amazing Trek Untold show to you. If you're already following us or have supported us in any other way, thank you, of course, for being a part of the Trek Untold family. 
There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we're very grateful that you chose us to listen to. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and replicas for fans of all ages and toys of all sizes. But you'll hear more about them a little later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold. Now, join me on the other side of the screen here. We have a multiple-time Emmy Award winner and multiple-time Emmy-nominated makeup artist. Such a treat to be able to talk to you today. We've got Karen Westerfield on the other side. Karen, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you very much. Thank you for asking me to come on to your show, Matthew. Oh, no problem. You know, I was looking up uh, some things about you, trying to do some more research on you, and it's kind of funny. You're you're very enigmatic, and I don't really know if that's on purpose or just how it worked out, but I couldn't find, like... too many interviews with you at all. Uh, your IMDb page is missing a lot of stuff. I had to find an old resume. So th- this is the mystery of Karen Westfield. We're going to try and solve it today. Yeah, you think it's a mystery. Uh, I looked at stuff on IMDb and I thought, I storyboarded a movie? Wait, what? <laughs> what? You know, and then I had to think back. I was a production assistant on something and uh, I was asked if I could draw and I said, no. And they said, okay, good. So you can storyboard this movie. Right. And I said, what are you talking about? And it was just ironic, but I got a, you know, I think I got a credit because it's on IMDb, but yep. I don't know. It was so long ago, you know, IMDb is a weird thing. We talk to people all the time who come on the show about it. And like some people just, it's got things that's missing. Some people say it's got things that never did. <laughs> it's a funny place, Yeah. but yeah, let's just jump right in here. And uh, I'd like to ask you the first question I ask all of my guests. What is your earliest memory of Star Trek? My earliest memory of Star Trek was the original one. I don't think the family watched it, but I'm pretty sure it was NBC. So I'm going way back. So, uh, but NBC and then uh, Bonanza was on NBC and I Spy, and Star Trek, and one other show, and I can't remember what it was, but they were offering, like when you watch television, if you send in um, like a dollar and uh, your name and address, they will send you four posters. And one was Star Trek, and one was Bonanza, and one was I Spy, and I can't remember the other one. It could have been Man from Uncle. I really don't remember. But that was my first memory of the original Star Trek. Like I wouldn't, e- couldn't even tell you what the names of the characters or the actors were at that time, because I wasn't really watching Star Trek. I'd like to get a little bit more background information about yourself. So can you tell us where you were born, who your parents were, and what little Karen wanted to be when she grew up? I was born in Long Beach, California. Uh, my parents met during the occupation of World War II. My mother was from Yokohama, Japan. My father was born in Hoboken. His parents were from Germany, and they came through Ellis Island into the New York area. Uh, When my father was 16, they forged his birth certificate, and he joined the Army. And then I never saw um, combat action. And then after his, I think you had to be in four years then or something. I don't really remember. He didn't talk much about it. He talked more about, uh, he went back during the occupation after the war was over um, with the Merchant Marines. So the Merchant Marines are a division of um, the Coast Guard. And they went and uh, brought supplies to the troops that were rebuilding Japan during the occupation. My grandfather, my mother's father, Um, was a professional photographer, and he had a photography studio near the port of Yokohama. And 
my father, my grandfather was a huge Western file. So while everyone was still wearing kimonos, my grandfather wore suits, you know, wore the uh, glasses actually like this that were round, that were car like caricatures of the Japanese, but were actually from, if you can believe it, Harold Lloyd. My mother told me that the Japanese got those glasses from Harold Lloyd's and his silent movie. So I find it ironic that people later made fun of the Japanese for having round glasses and that was part of the caricature with the buck teeth and the slanted eyes. But anyway, I digress. Um, so my grandfather used to put a special thing in the window. My mother said, uh, hey, GI, come have your picture taken and send it back to your family in the United States to let them know how you're doing. And my father walked in. My mother was working the counter at the photography studio. And um, that's how they met. And they courted for quite a long time, almost eight years before uh, they got married and they came to the United States. And then my dad ported in Long Beach and that's how he ended up in Long Beach, California. So as a little kid, what did you think you were gonna be when you grew up? I, w I wanted to be a boy. <laughs> I know it's really weird. I, well, I actually wanted to be a boy when I was a little kid because boys got to do really cool stuff. I, I really loved baseball. Um, I loved building things. I liked um, playing sports and running around and stuff. Um, I loved Levi's and uh, it was at the beginning of Vans tennis shoes, you know, because I'm in my mid 60s now. Um, hang 10 t-shirts and stuff like that. And um, I remember a story when w I was in elementary school and we were learning about um, the pioneer days in the West and uh, the girls got to make a bonnet and the boys got to make a Calistoga wagon. And I, I said, I want to make a Calistoga, wa Calistoga wagon because I already know how to sew. So to sew a bonnet was like no big deal. And they said, no, that's the boys thing that they're going to make. You have to make a bonnet. So my, I found out, um, my mother had to go in to talk to the principal to see if it like ask permission. That's how far back we go um, to ask permission if I could make a Calistoga wagon. And it was the most fun thing, you know, hammering stuff, playing with wood. And then it turns out that my wagon turned out to be the nicest looking because I already knew how to sew. So when we sew the the top, top of the Calistoga wagon, which is made out of back then, I think it was canvas, but, um, and you had to sew it on to like the wire of that coat hanger and stuff that, um, mine turned out really good. Cause I knew how to sew and the guys didn't know how to sew, but you know, so that was like the beginning thing. And then I really thought, uh, as far as a job, you know, I wanted to go into medicine because I really wanted to help people. And then when I ended up uh, going to college and in the summers, I worked at the VA hospital. I went to uh, University of California in San Diego in La Jolla and um, I was uh, too much of a bleeding heart. I couldn't be around. It was really hard to be around Vietnam soldiers and people that were, you know, motorcycle accidents. And it was just really bad. And I thought, okay, this isn't what I want to do. And um, by the time uh, I had to really declare my major. I didn't know what I was going to do. So I ended up uh, quitting school and going home to work in Long Beach and uh, ended up with a 35 millimeter camera and then went back to school two years later and changed my major to visual arts and um, uh, majored in visual arts with an emphasis in 
uh, photography and film. So that's, you know, and don't ask me how I got into makeup. It, it was a really, cause I was a tomboy, you know, it was a really weird roundabout way. It's like one of those, I tell people, uh, I think I tripped over something and then <laughs> fell into a hole and then I started doing makeup, but I loved universal monsters was my favorite. And Frankenstein, you know, was my all time favorite, but as a kid never even thought about, Oh, that's makeup. You know, I didn't know true. that you could do that kind of stuff. It was just really cool. You know, Frankenstein, the mummy, you know, uh, the Wolfman, Dracula. They were just Phantom of the Opera. Those were just just awesome films. And uh, but I never thought about, oh, there's uh, such a thing as makeup effects. Makeup was always considered like girl makeup, women's makeup. And uh, who knew that you could make a living doing that, you know? Yeah, I find it kind of interesting because we're talking about, you know, early on as a child, you're kind of battling these gender norms, but they also kind of inform your decisions later on in life. Because, you know, just to kind of take it back a little bit, when you talk about building that wagon, it just reminded me of this person who, uh, so I, I collect wrestling toys, uh, wrestling oh. action figures. And there's a lot of people who make customs things out there, like, you know, custom championship belts, for example. And there's this person I'm buying from, and they make like the most amazing championship belts ever. They use like, you know, real leather and 3D printed plates. They're painted beautifully. And I just interviewed the person for my website. And I found out this person's a woman. I didn't realize this whole time. And it's, you know, so interesting because it's just a whole different world and you wouldn't expect that. But that's, you know, what you're kind of doing when you're breaking these gender norms. So I find that really cool that you, know, you were doing that at that young age and you were getting to what's considered more masculine. Um, and you're into films that might be considered more masculine also. But at the end of the day, you find yourself in an industry and a part of that industry that kind of combines all of those different things you liked and all those different parts of you together. Right. And it. it in the beginning, when I started doing makeup effects, there was only like maybe half a dozen women that were doing this. And um, the biggest thing was, um, wow, I can work and um, like wear T-shirts and jeans and tennis shoes and uh, get dirty and get paid. Wow, that's an ideal job, you know, and I really thought that. And I remember I worked at this one place um, called RoboShop, and it was a, um, a division of Landmark Entertainment, and they did um, uh, they did the Ghostbuster ride down in uh, Orlando um, uh, for Universal, and then uh, they had done. Oh, sorry, that's my cat. And they had done um, Sanrio, uh, Mr. Tsuji from Sanrio. He wanted to be like the Japanese. Walt Disney. So he did this Pyroland in Tamashi, a section of Tokyo. It was the first indoor amusement park in Japan. And so I got to work on that and I actually go to Japan. But working at RoboShop, I got to work with all guys. I worked in the plastics department and it was just a really great job. And I was already in the craft service union. And, um, and ironically, I, when I was working there, I got a call while I was working once and they said, Hey, we have a new show starting up. W would you be interested in doing craft service? And I said, no, I don't think so. Cause I'm working this, I'm trying to segue into the makeup union. And I said, what's the show? And they said, um, Seinfeld. And I said, who's that? You know, oh, Jerry Seinfeld is comedian. I said, no, I don't think it's going to go. I don't think that show would last. So I didn't want to go on a pilot show and then like have no job back at RoboShop. Uh, so that was like one of my first big like errors and, uh, you know, deciding what I wanted to do, but it was okay because everything that we decided to do along the way in our journey allows us to be here now. 
you know, so I accept that as that's the way it goes. So. And so you mentioned you were in craft services as well. So you kind of started out as a crafty more than just a makeup person in the beginning, right? Right. It, I had, after I graduated from college, you know, like all good um, children, you go back home because you don't have a job yet. And I uh, went back to Long Beach and then uh, took some classes at Long Beach City College. And one of them was, um, I think it was like a acting in front of the camera class because I was interested in that kind of stuff, but more of the behind the scenes, like directing. And um, the teacher said, have a friend who uh, needs a PA. And, you know, of course, then what's a PA? Oh, that's a production assistant. You're not going to get paid, but they need someone who could do it all week. And I didn't really have a job besides hanging out. So um, I volunteered and got to do that. And I worked with uh, Albert Pune, who did it, it was called I think it was called Red Moon. And it was a canon film. And um, I was the PA. So basically, you're a runner, you're a schlepper, you're whatever they ask you to do kind of thing. And there was a girl there who was the craft service person. And when I was in college, I used to help a friend of mine, um, Ms. Walls, and she did a catering thing for um, music, you know, like at the San Diego um, arena. Sorry, that's the cat moving the table. <laughs> so I did this, uh, you know, helped her with the catering stuff and, you know, was used to working in that kind of capacity. And so they said to me, hey, will you go help the craft service? person because like the table was a mess every there was water everywhere from melting ice and you know it, it doesn't take an Einsteinian intellect to drain the water out of the ice chest and take a you know rag and some cleaner and clean off the and all this girl did was complain about how she went to film school and she could shoot this better than the director she could light it better than the DP and all this stuff but she got hired on as craft service and I just went okay whatever so uh, long story short, I went on to their next project and then I got a music video and then I was shooting at, uh, at that time it was called Laird Studios. So now I think it's, uh, Culver City Studios and they asked, uh, that somebody asked about doing craft service on Alan Quartermain in the Lost City of Gold. And it was like pickup shots or something. It wasn't very long. It was like a month. And then uh, someone came to that show and asked who did the craft service. And then I got hired on Masters of the Universe. Then Masters of the Universe flipped and became a union show because the budget was really big. And then uh, uh, I got in the craft service union from that. And then from there, uh, that was like 80 eight or something 87 or 88 would have been around yeah, something like time. that and um and then at the time the producers had put money in for anyone in craft service could learn any other job whether it was learning how to drive a truck become a teamster learning acting video playback camera makeup hair anything like that you pay for it up front you successfully complete the course that you give all the paperwork to uh, contract services, they reimburse you, the, the producers, and then they had to let you in that specific union that you got trained in. And I honestly, you know, they, the, the person who was the business agent at the time, he said no, but they said too bad, it's already in the contract. It was part of the general uh, business, you know, contract. So, um, 
So that's how I got in the union. I never had to do days. I'm the only one in our local who came in that way. But luckily, I, um, because somebody asked me, so did you know a lot? And I said, no, I really, I really didn't. But luckily, you know, I had artistic ability. I was a good study and um, you could show me something. I could repeat what you were doing. You would never know I never did it before and uh, kind of snuck in kind of, you know what I mean? Like, honestly, um, and then went on to, you know, be uh, Emmy nominated, Emmy winning, uh, do some really big movies and really great work. And um, I think my work is good. Uh, not the greatest. I could name you people that I admire far more than my own work, but uh, I could hold my own. And, uh, you know, the biggest thing is I always wanted to have a job where I would have fun and uh, create something. So this was like, turned out to be like the ideal job. Yeah, it really sounds like just the perfect combination of everything you wanted out of pretty much anything in life. So that's, that's really great. Yeah, now, I'm curious, when you first started, was that doing beauty makeup or is that doing special effects makeup? I had already done uh, taking classes like at the junior college level in life casting, sculpting, mass making, you know, because there was a lot of theater stuff that you could do. So um, I had to go. The school that I went to was uh, Westmore Academy, Marvin Westmore School, who recently Marvin recently passed away this last year in 2020 and great man. And um, uh, I learned beauty makeup there. But I was already learning effects and doing small, like low budget, no budget, uh, super eight and 16 millimeter, like weird horror, horror gore films kind of thing, which wasn't really what I wanted to do. I like the I like makeup effects, but, you know, uh, blood effects wasn't really my thing, even though I did work on RoboCop. I, did you find that one? That would be a hard one. That I did not pick up on RoboCop. Really? Yeah, that's a good story too. So anyway, um, well, now I think I have to ask you about that right now. I feel like, but uh, yeah. Okay, we were... <laughs> so I it was I was doing craft service. I got called to do craft service on it was I think four days on RoboCop pickups. They were done shooting the whole movie. They wanted to go in um, the scene where uh, Murphy gets cut like in half with the guns and stuff, and he's writhing in pain. And he's screaming and there's blood everywhere. And Paul Verhoeven wanted to reshoot that scene. And the effects guys were there. And uh, I don't know if you know, but crafts service, it's called crafts with an S service, is because we service the crafts. That person is allowed to go to any department and work in any department without getting in trouble because in L.A. and New York, the two places that are left in the United States that you have to be in a specific union. You can't cross over, you know, we're not like one motion picture union or a right to work state where you just say, Oh, I can do a multitude of things and you can go do anything. So um, crafts service. So when uh, that department said, we need an extra pair of hands that they can come to me. I don't get in trouble. They don't get in trouble and everyone's happy. So you know, you could do that with sound. I, I pulled a lot of cable for sound in the camera department when I after I got in the union. And then what happens, you get a day in that union, you get a bump in pay. And then once you get 30 days, you could join that union if that's what you wanted to do. You know, it's interesting how it all works, but they rarely call it crafts service anymore. They call it craft services, which is not what it is, but that's OK. And um, 
as as my friend would say, would you rather correct someone's English, uh, you know, and, and or be happy? Do you want to be right <laughs> or do you want to be happy? So I just let it go, you know. But um, anyway, so I'm on this Paul Verhoeven thing, uh, RoboCop, and uh, we're doing this blood effect. And of course, they have gallons and gallons of blood and Paul Verhoeven is directing it. And it's like a close up and the uh, fake dummy. And I think Rob Bottin did it. You know, I can't tell you. I think Robotine made the suit. I don't know if he did the uh, prosthetic stuff. I couldn't tell you because I was doing craft service. But anyway, so I'm going to give Robotine the credit. So these guys are doing this effect and they're pumping blood. And all you hear is Paul Verhoeven saying, more blood, more blood, more blood. And then we had to do take after take after take and then just covered in blood. And um so that was my little stint on uh, RoboCop. It was actually pretty fun. You know, we're shooting down in some warehouse in Long Beach. And since I grew up in Long Beach, it was just nice to be in the you know area. And uh, like my first job when I was a kid, when I was 15 and a half, um, was at the uh, Long Beach Convention Center, Long Beach Arena, and uh, selling concessions, you know, hot dogs and sodas and candy and popcorn at uh, big concerts you know, music concerts. So I got to see a lot of that old, you know, music, heavy metal, stuff like that. So anyway, so yeah, so that was my uh, stint on RoboCop. It was fun. You know, those kind of things are always fun. You it's know, fun you watching Peter Weller get blown apart by shotguns. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, at the time, it's just like, it's crazy. I mean, here's a great story with um, Peter Weller. So I'm craft service and he says, hey, kid, you know, they always like to call you kid. You know, I'm in like 35 years old at that time. And he, hey, kid, I need you to go pick up my dry cleaning. And I'm thinking that's not the craft services, you know, job. But production said, can you go do that for him? You know, and I said, um, yeah, but he's got to pay for it. I, you know, I'm not going to pay for it. I, it's not like in my budget or, you know, whatever. And um, they said, don't worry, just use petty cash out of your petty cash. Computer. So I pay for it. And then he's. uh uh I give him his dry clean. It's just a weird story. I give him his dry cleaning. I say, you owe me like $4, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, or $9 or I can't remember. And, um, and, uh, he's getting ready to leave cause he's done shooting for the day. And I catch him driving out in his sports car and I stop his car and I say, Hey, you owe me, you know, $4. So he gives me $5 and he says, eh, keep the change. So I said, Oh, will you sign it for me then? And he signed the $5 bill, you know, Robocop, Peter Weller. And I thought, you know, wow. Okay. Uh, and I still have it today. It's a souvenir, but I just thought what an arrogant, you know, SOB that, you know, that I should, you got the person who gets paid the least amount of money on a movie and you're asking them to go pick up your dry cleaning. But I didn't know much about uh, films and how everything worked back then either. I was pretty new because craft service was, you know, like after the production assistant part, craft service was the first, you know, union job into the industry. So Karen, you mentioned the Westmores a little while ago. We're going to talk about them in a little bit, but first I want to talk about a few other movies that you worked on. And uh, one that I want to talk about first is Edward Scissorhands, Tim Burton classic, uh, really great movie to this day, still holds up cult classic, big following. Uh, what was your job on Edward Scissorhands? Oh, um, I don't even know if I got credit. I don't think I got credit. How did you find out about that job? 
I found an old resume of yours, and uh, I found it through that way. Oh, okay. All right. I did some digging. I've been digging deeper, find stuff out about you. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, I worked at RoboShop, was a division of Landmark Entertainment, and they got the contract to do the ice sculptures that are at the end of the movie. Ah. Because I was in the plastics department, it was me and three other guys. I mean, there was actually um, three, four, five, six. There, I think there was eight of us in the department, but it was four of us. Myself, uh, Tony Cope was my foreman, and Robert Spencer was his boss, and Mike Levitri was a sculptor who helped us do these ice sculptures. So they were done by a sculptor named. Uh, I think it was Gunner and it was, uh, it was green foam. And because he was a mold maker, he knew how to draft the green foam. So when it got parted out and made into, we had to make these giant uh, plaster molds. And then from the plaster molds, we had to do these fiberglass plugs that then were put under a four by eight sheet of butyrate, clear plastic and vacuum formed. It was crazy. And then we had to cut them all with Dremels. And then we put it together, if you can believe it, with um, cyanoacrylate. So super glue and, um, you know, zip kicker. And uh, we ended up that week working like 136 hours. And there were times where we were so tired and we couldn't get much work done because all you do is laugh, you know. So but it turned out to be one of the funnest things I ever did. And those guys were great to work with. And to this day, I'm still really close friends with Mike Levitri, um, the sculptor. And I uh, have talked to Tony Cope uh couple of times throughout the years and Robert Spencer, I don't know what happened to him, but I did see his son once, but you know, that kind of thing. And I, you know, I didn't stay that much uh, in touch because I learned how to do use a chopper gun, which is a fiberglass gun that inside this big um, everything, but I was really good with my hands. And so I got to do small animatronic animal, the shells for the fiberglass shells for the animals using angel angel hair, fiberglass and stuff like that, because I was really good doing the really delicate stuff. So they had me do stuff for that for this ride in, you know, Japan. But we did get that um, job for Edward Scissorhands, which was really cool. And you also have another Tim Burton picture under your belt, and that was Batman Returns. Uh, did you yeah, work on that, that one? Yeah, that, <laughs> that was really great. That one I worked with uh, at the time, Mike Bastings, uh, he, he now lives in Japan, teaches English down in the lower part of Honshu. I had brought in Mike Bastings at Rick Baker's who, to run foam. He got the job to run foam for the Batman cowl and the suit. And they were using Australian mold makers and English mold makers. And um, they did a collapsible core on the Batman cowl. So there was no exterior. They didn't have to seam anything. And then my job was to help Mike in the foam running. And ironically, because I was in the makeup union already, and he was in the sculptor's mold makers union, I was, he was my boss, but I was making better money because my union was stronger at the time. And so I just, I, there's a category called uh, makeup lab tech in our union. So I got lab tech rate in the makeup union. And then I got to help. Um, 
I can't remember his last name. I think Peter something. Anyway, so the guy who did the bat capes, they were giant pie wedge, triangular pie wedges, and the material was like a naga hide, so it had a texture on it. And then it was put into this giant part of the warehouse um, uh, where we were located over by the Burbank Airport. And then they were um, C-clamped together. And then we would spray black latex over this um, pie wedge. I guess you would call it a mold, you know, because it would be peeled off later. But anyway, so then that got sprayed and it was... 10 layers or something. I can't remember because, you know, at that time I never thought of the importance of, you know, I should document this or write something down or, you know, I never thought about, you know, uh, taking any kind of um, documentation on my work because I was just working, you know, I never thought about it anyway. So, and then what happened was they had this lightweight wool, black wool that was cut to fit into each triangle space. And then where the triangle pieces came together, like when your fingers come together, there's like a little natural dip. And then no wool was put into there, it was put in, and then that part was rub rubberized so you could see like the, like the cape had panels to it. And then, you know, after it was all, then it was encased, uh, that wool was encased in more layers of latex was totally dried, trimmed out, taken off. And then they, um, you know, did whatever the costume department did, whatever they did. So he could use it. That thing was heavy. It was heavy. It, I don't know how heavy it had to be at least 50 pounds, but when it, because of the weight, like when he spun it, like, Oh, better than the Mark of Zorro with Tyrone power, you know, like when he spun around in his cape, but the bat cape that it was pretty amazing how they did that. And that guy was a fetish wear uh, manufacturer in London. So that's how he knew a lot about latex. And there was another guy um, named Andy Wilkes who did the cat suit. And he also was a fetish wear person from London, but he was already in LA and then he did the cat suit and then part of my job was the original Batman movie when they made that patina sheen on the uh, latex, it was silicone oil. And so they asked me to try to come up with something else because it would soak into the foam latex because foam latex is like a sponge. And then also it would get smelly like after time and time again, they would always have to put it on. And anyway, so I actually came up with a... Um, a formula from SkinFlex, and I used uh, matte SkinFlex and semi-matte SkinFlex, added uh, pigmentation, and I don't remember if it was Universal Tints or uh, the brand, but it was like uh, low volume of liquid to high volume of color, and then sprayed it on and did all these tests using matte gloss, semi-matte gloss, you know, did all these different formulas and kept track of everything. And then finally came up with one that they liked that gave it that patina shine. And then it lasted longer, except where when Batman had like a belt on and stuff, it would rub off. So they, the suits would come back. And then every night I would have to clean off the edge with a little Q-tip, you know, and then respray stuff. And that's how that is, that was done.
And it's funny because people say, oh, yeah, they used I go, no, they didn't. Oh, how do you know? I said, because I was the one who did it. <laughs> Just like the bat, um, the Catwoman cowl. Yeah. It had to match her suit. And her suit was machine milled sheet latex, which is very shiny. And they used silicone oil to make it shiny. I had to match the head, which was foam latex. So you can imagine, it's like, okay, now match the sponge to this machine milled, you know, shiny latex. And I did it. And the same thing, I used skin flex, but I used gloss and then did it a different way. But it made it, if you look at pictures, I was, you know, like I look at pictures now and think, oh, I'm, oh how proud of myself I am that I was able to do that because, you know, it was all, you know, R&D. It, it was a crapshoot. We didn't know. No, nobody had done it before. So uh, there was a lot of that. We also tried to do um, like silicone material for the penguin body. Really hard to do. It was hard to vacuum form like the shape and stuff. And then to use liquid silicone like breast implants. And, um, you know, we couldn't get any kind of formula or way to do it because people in that business were thinking that you're going to steal their you know, special formula. So we tried a long time to do it that way and it didn't work out. So we went back to the traditional, they made a fat suit out of like beans and how they sewed it and stuff. And um, it worked really well for uh, Danny DeVito as the penguin. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film or a part of a cosplay or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triple fiction productions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Armin Schimmerman. And I'm Kitty Swink. 17 years ago, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I didn't know it at the time, but I had a 4% chance of surviving five years. As her husband, I was very scared. But he never let me see that. You are a rock. Thank you. Thank you. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate of just 10%. We want it to be much higher. Much higher. It's 6% better when I was diagnosed, but not high enough. More than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021, and more than 48,000 will die from the disease. Because symptoms are often vague, it can be hard to detect. Like the rest of the world, the Star Trek universe has been struck repeatedly by pancreatic cancer. Not only those of us that work on the show, but our fans around the world as well. 
It is why we came together with so many others to work with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocates committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create better outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research and early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support their important mission by donating at pancan.org today. We donated. Won't you do so too? Please, make it so. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Karen, let's jump into some Star Trek discussion because you have so much Star Trek to go through. And really, we're only going to get like a sampling of that today because otherwise we'd be here for days. I think with all the Star Trek stories yeah. you probably have. <laughs> but let's okay, just start so with... Let me, before you ask sure. me a question, I'm just going to segue from Edward Scissorhands to the Penguin on Batman Returns to where I got the maroon around Quark's eyes was from Edward Scissorhands and the Penguin. And oh, really? Neil did it. And I asked her what the color was. It was a, I think it was 084. It was a Krylon maroon color. And that's what I used on Armin. And only Armin, as he was the only Ferengi who had that. Everybody else had brown, dark brown. But Armin's was maroon. And then I would feather it out. But that's where I got the idea of using that because Armin has uh, gray blue eyes and it would pop his eyes out that dark maroon color. And plus it was set back, you know, it, because of the cowl, how the uh, head was sculpted. But I just wanted to throw that in because people ask, how did you get that color? And he goes, I don't know, you know, and I don't know uh, if Mike Westmore's ever answered the question, but I know that's what I did because he gave me uh, leeway as far as I had to keep the Ferengi coloring and how it looked, but I could change something to make him more distinct than anybody else. But everything else, like he didn't have that skirt on the back of his head because originally Ferengis were warrior, a warrior. I think they were warrior tribe. Well, they had a like a tattoo on their front right lobe. Is that, if that's right? Anyway, so that was from Next Generation. And then when it came to Deep Space Nine, Armin, who played Quark, became, you know, he's a a capitalist and he owns the bar on deep space nine. So it, they changed how the Ferengis were. They weren't, you know, really um, in the service, that kind of thing. So it's kind of funny that you mentioned Armin's eyes and this is the perfect segue into Star Trek discussion is, you know, we, we spoke to Armin a while back and uh, we even actually, I think addressed this as well. We addressed some of the costume things and uh, we just, I think talked about his eyes, but that's something that people always come to is how his eyes always look very sympathetic. And that made Quark, be that much more human more so than being like an alien character so that was really very much thanks to you and the makeup team more i mean not, not to take away anything from armin's acting skills but that's very much you know uh part of what you guys did the makeup team to make that happen right and then you know uh, like i said i was not really a star trek watcher like a fan um you know you have to realize that yes it was cool but it was still my job mm. you know um i read the scripts i, I never really watched the show. I, it's so bizarre. It wasn't only until later that I watched the show or watched the movies. Cause I know people always are, they gasp. Oh, I was not a big sci-fi person. You know, I had a hard 
time with uh, Fahrenheit 451 and, you know, with, um, uh, you know, 1984 and George Orwell and then, uh, you know, War of the Worlds and, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, and even when it went into the, the closest I got to Star Trek, that uh, Star Trek, the closest I got to sci-fi that I loved was Twilight Zone because it was clever, really clever. And then, you know, it was more believable. There was like the human element in Twilight Zone that I didn't see a lot. But I did like uh, Gene Roddenberry's um, vision of Star Trek for the future, that there would be, you know, people would live in harmony. There'd be really no war anything going on, but it makes for bad stories when everyone gets along. You have to have some kind of conflict and some kind of resolution. But if we all get along, you know, people wouldn't really want to, they want to see something happen. They have to see something happen. Even if everyone gets along, but then you just, you know, kill everybody else that's involved and that kind of thing. So (laughs) anyway, so go on. Sorry, I just went off into a tension. (laughs) That happens. So your first time on Star Trek, was that actually Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country? No, uh, Next Generation. It was Next Generation. Next time came first. Okay, I was curious because those two came very close together. Yeah. Uh, I had met Michael Westmore on Masters of the Universe, and because I did craft service, they would ask me for some kind of supplies that they needed that were things I could get at the grocery store, like baggies or aluminum foil or whatever. And um, I was already sculpting and doing some stuff, and I asked him, you know, could I – uh, show you pictures of my work. You know, I had taken photographs and he goes, yeah, sure. You know, so he gave me feedback on my sculpting. He said, you know, nice, but this is too smooth. This is too rough. And there's no transition between the two. So you have to realize that you can't just go. It's very jarring on the eye. Like your mind goes smooth, 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 rough terrain kind of thing. You know, so he says you have to transition where it goes from smooth to get slightly a little rough and then go into the real rough part. So it was very interesting. And he said, you know, um, I told him I wanted to become a makeup effects artist. He says, well, let me know when you're in and I'll give you a job, you know, uh, whatever I'm working on at the time. So I said, okay. So um, by the time I made it to um, get in the union and uh, call him, he let me come down to the set and not go in the set, but I would come to the makeup trailer and he would help me with my facial hair work. And, um, uh, you know, I got to practice while I was on the Paramount lot, which I thought was really nice of him. And then uh, he showed me how to float off facial hair, like set it, you know, iron it, set it, uh, and then you spray it and then you float it off with acetone or uh, alcohol, depending if you're by yourself or you're in fresh air or whatever. And, um, and then he would actually use it on the show, which I thought was pretty cool. Well, you know, later you weren't really supposed to do that. But um, for me, as someone coming in, that's pretty new. I mean, I was already in the union. It wasn't like I wasn't in the union, but I wasn't being hired on the show, you know. And then um, it was like one of the last uh, days of Next Generation. And he called me in to do a background Klingon. And I had, I first of all, I didn't know what a Klingon was. <laughs> You know, I'd never seen Next Generation. <laughs> Remember, I'm the person that doesn't like sci-fi. So I didn't even know. I knew Next Generation was a Star Trek TV show, but I've never seen it. Didn't know who was on it. Um, I didn't know what Klingons looked like. And so when I got there, 
it just so happens people that worked on Masters of the Universe um, uh, were working on a show, specifically uh, June Haymore Westmore uh, ended up marrying Monty Westmore. And um, she said, OK, here are the colors and this is what you do. And, you know, you know how to glue all the stuff on it. I go, yeah, I know how to do all that. And they said, OK, so here's the highlight. Here's the shadow. Here's this is that. And then, you know, that was my first um, my first uh, Star Trek makeup. And then from there, I did the next season of Next Generation and then ended up doing Ferengis on that show. And then Mike said, hey, you know, um, are you interested? Would you do a Ferengi on uh, Deep Space? And I said, yeah, sure. He didn't tell me it was Armin. He didn't tell me it was Quark. He didn't tell me it was one of seven main characters. He just said, you're just going to do a Ferengi, you know, like you did over here. Well, the Ferengis over on Next Generation that I was doing uh, rarely spoke. They were background, you know, so it wasn't like any big deal. So uh, I was kind of glad later that he didn't tell me. I think I would have been nervous to know that he was one of the main characters on the show. But that's how I met Armin and got on Deep Space Nine. And then the following year, I got on as a permanent worker on the show. Now, did you actually work on Star Trek VI? I've read that somewhere. Is that true, or is that yeah, just a... uh, Undiscovered Country? Yep. Yeah, did part. Um, uh, did mostly. I think they were the Romulans. You know, they had that big court mm-hmm. uh, yep. with like the. I think they were ambassadors. I, 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 think I that was really... that might have been Vulcans. I think I'm trying to remember. Also, I haven't seen Star Trek. Oh 6 no, I think you were right. Court, they were right? Vulcans. They were Vulcans, and um... same difference. Don't tell. Don't tell any Trekkies I said that. <laughs> yeah, but it depends on where you were, because some, you know, uh, Romulans have really like evolved from the original show when they came out. You know, or was that Klingons? Klingons, I think, evolved. They've all the changed. Most. They've all the makeup has changed so much. You know, Klingons were just like flesh tone with eyebrows and. You know, they had, you know, a longer hair. That was it. And then now they have a full, like their for- whole forehead got, you know, convoluted. But um, yeah, so it was um, it was Vulcans and they had that big uh, caucus and then the Klingon thing and Klingons in the rafters. I mean, it was crazy. There it was a huge, huge call. Um, we were out in Simi Valley. They were shooting outside or they had a warehouse. It's so long ago. I can't remember all the details, but it was big. And um, Marvin Westmore was the department head with Mike Mills. And then um, uh, there was all kinds of stuff going on. And I was just one of many, you know, of the makeup artists that were there. So we, uh, you know, how they do, when they do a big prosthetic show, they usually, have the first crew come on that do application. They'll have a second crew come on to take over the makeup. So the first crew can get a turnaround. And then the second crew um, watches the makeup and then takes it off at the end of the night. And, um, you know, while the second crew is watching the makeup, the first crew comes off the set and they prep the stuff for the next day. You know, it's pretty efficient how they do it. So that gives everybody a break, but some of the, I think one day we had uh, got off work at 1130 at night after shooting since something like four in the morning or coming on at four in the morning, getting off at uh, like doing a 16 or 18 hour day and then coming back two and a half hours later 
to do it again. And there were, I think, four or five or six of us who did that. And it was crazy. We, I mean, you get paid for it. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, you, your mind is so foggy. Uh, it's not really, I don't think it's not really efficient because you work so much slower because you're not, you know, rested. And then, you know, most of the time you just end up laughing all the time. It's really, <laughs> but it was a fun, it was a fun movie to work on. It was huge, you know? Oh yeah. And I think I worked on that. I worked on Insurrection. I worked on yep. Generations or I don't know. There was one where Armin came on as Quark and that was a next generation movie. I thought it was, so that was okay. So that's interesting. So then you worked on Insurrection also. Yeah. So that's actually well, a deleted scene. Insurrection, the one with um, F. Murray Abraham. Yep, yeah. So if you if you worked right, on Quark for that movie, that was actually a deleted scene. That's only available in like the Blu-ray. Uh, so yeah. maybe you can actually tell us a little bit about that because, uh, you know, I mean, that, well, that, that's I didn't missing. do his makeup. Dean Dean Jones did his makeup, but I was just doing background stuff. So, ah. you know, I mean, a lot of it was, uh, you know, Next Generation was working, then D Space started, so they had two shows going on. Then they would do a movie. So they would pull makeup artists from the shows and then do the movie. Then you go back to a show, you know, because they at that time we were shooting, I think, 24, 26 episodes and they were eight day, you know, working day episodes. Right. So it ended up being like 10 months out of the year. So it was a long time. Like nowadays, it's like, OK, eight episodes, a 13, maybe 16 at the most, you know, because they don't want to invest the money. Um, to see if the uh, show is going to go. So you'll see things like we're going to do six episodes, but they're going to be longer. Or like in England, they do a lot of hour and a half, hour 45 minute episodes. Like I I like to watch Endeavor. I don't know if you've seen that show. Um, I like a lot of crime show stuff. So these were, uh, it started, it's like a movie of the week. It's a movie that's on TV, right? But in England, and then, it was popular. And so then they decide to do it as a first series and it's only uh, two to four, but it's movies. They're movie length. They're not like a 45 minute, you know, episode. So then, and then the United States started following suit and doing the same kind of thing that we're going to do a longer four, four episode series, which is really weird, but yeah. we were doing, and that's nothing. 24 to 26 back then was normal. If you think, go back to when I Love Lucy was shooting, they did 35 episodes per season. You know, some and shows Lucy were Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz had to walk 10 miles in the snow to get to the studio back then, too. Yeah, you know, on his burrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but um, yeah, so it's like really different how things are done, you know, and how things change. But that was the average thing. It was a lot of work. Yeah. You know, 10 months of pushing yourself physically and mentally. Um, you did get time off on uh, the weekend, but mostly Saturday you slept and then Sunday you got to prep. And then if you have a family or kids or animals and stuff, then you were just exhausted all the time. And you did that for 10 months. And then, wow. you know, when you were done, most of us got really sick after you push your body for that long, your body just rebels and says, okay, now it's my turn. And then, everyone gets sick and then catches, you know, a cold or something. So I want to get into a little bit of the nitty gritty of what you do. In fact, uh, so, you know, we talked to Thomas Supernaut a while back and he talked to us about a lot of the process Ooh. of actually putting on the makeup. Yeah. That guy, remember him? 
Yeah. So he told us, I think, about uh, the Klingon makeup, in fact. But since you, in particular, worked on Armin, you did Frangies. That was kind of your specialty. Uh, walk us through the process of how you turn, let's say, Armin Shimmerman from Armin off the street into Quark the Frangi. Okay. Ferengis were not my specialty. I'd done two before I did Armin. So um, I guess nowadays maybe that is a specialty. But uh, back then I just thought, you know, because Mike Westmore just said, hey, would you like to do a Ferengi makeup? Yeah, sure. You know, like I'm going to say no, you know. So he had his own headpiece and his own, uh, we called it um, the wing piece. It looks like a bat, the nose with the two um cheeks connected so like the the cowl came over the eyebrows and came down this way his ears were inside they sculpted it where they allowed like the original Ferengi heads had no ear pockets so the ears were pushed down and those guys had to be in that for um all day long and their ears were quite sore so when Armin apparently Armin told me when he got the job he asked for ear pockets to be sculpted in Right. And then it comes down the side of the neck. His was longer. It had gone down the neck and below the collar line because he didn't have the back. They called it a skirt. You know, I don't know what the technical term was, but they always called it the Ferengi skirt. And usually that material matched the uh, costume of the Ferengi that was wearing it. And um, Armin didn't have that. He was the only one who didn't have that particular um uh, clothing on his head. And um, when we first started, uh, it took about eight hours to prep the head. And um, then, it, you know, you always get faster, but to do the makeup, the makeup was uh, three hours when we started. Uh, he would get the head part was put on first and then the wing face part. And then, um, it's all glued down and then you start the painting process. The head is pre-painted because it's been prepped um, and um, any kind of like foam latex anomaly was fixed or any little hole was filled in, the seam line was filled in. And then um, uh, then the face and the, the head and the face was put on and it was all painted. And then of course his eyes and stuff and around his mouth, the teeth weren't put in until he actually was on set. Um, he didn't do his hands until he got broken for rehearsal. He would go to rehearsal and then go back to his trailer and get dressed. And then after he got dressed or before he put on, he got dressed, but before he put on his jacket, I would do his hands and that was pancake makeup and then do his blue nail polish. And then um, I was in charge of cleaning his teeth every night and making sure everything was good. And then, you know, that kind of thing. And um, just, you know, I had an old school way of looking of what the makeup artist did, which is you take care of your actor. So I always asked him, you know, do you need a water? Do you need anything? Do you, you know, so I always knew what was going on with Armin and, um, you know, I was just taught that way by, uh, you know, Monty Westmore and some of the older makeup artists that taught me that, you know, you care for your actor, you know, like you're the PA, you know, so I didn't, I didn't wait for someone to say, hey, get a PA so they can get arm and a water. I'd go get the water and the straw. I'd always carry straws with me in my kit, 
you know, um, napkins, stuff like that, whatever you need, paper towels. And then that was about it. it. So it took about three hours to put on and it took between half an hour to 45 minutes to take it off. And uh, depends also on how much he worked inside the makeup, because the more he worked during the day, especially if he was doing something that was strenuous or it was hot inside the set, then as you perspire, it, it actually starts to help loosen the pieces, not to the point that you could like pull it off by yourself, but um, uh, like something that's glued on and to take it off an hour later, it's really hard to do because the glue is all fresh. And back then we were using 355 um, prosthetic adhesive and a medical adhesive. And um, they don't make it anymore because Freon was there, was the um, uh, agent in the glue. And Freon got banned by the government. So they started making, a company called Telesis started making a different type of glue similar to that, but you can't use Freon anymore. So. Um, and uh, it was really, really strong because it's medical adhesive. It's for, you know, people that uh, let's say you have to wear a prosthetic arm because your arm wasn't uh, it didn't grow. Uh, you know, that it was a congenital thing or you had an accident and your arm was forearm was cut off and you had a prosthetic arm. So you could use this glue also uh, prostate glue, which is. Um, uh, sorry, they called uh, medical uh, uh, glue type B in the industry. And um, it, that was a contact glue. So you get one side full of glue and then you get the arm full of glue. You let it dry and then you stick it together. It's like contact cement, you know, kind of thing. And um, people could go swimming in it, take a shower in it and it wouldn't come off. You know, that's the kind of stuff we use for stunt guys that we knew they were going to sweat a lot or they had to go into water. I mean, there's all different reasons why you would use different glues, but um, Armin's was um, pretty good and he was pretty patient and um, he had the best attitude. He, he's probably the fi my favorite actor I've ever worked with because he just had such a great attitude about stuff, you know, and he would say, eh, they own my ass for eight days. So as far as I'm concerned, if I work, I work. If I don't, I don't. I got, I can read things, take a nap or do whatever. And um, he just had a really wonderful attitude about everything. And then I think only one time he was cranky and that's because he had a really bad head cold. So you can imagine having a head cold and then putting that, you know, prosthetic on your head and then gluing all in. And it just feels like your head's in a vice. And um, he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I don't feel like, oh, I understand. It's no big deal. It's just the way it goes, you know, but he was great. He's always been great. He's always been great to me. And uh, everyone who's ever met him always comes back and says, oh, yeah, Armin speaks very highly of you. And he's such a nice man. And, you know, he's very um, uh, always up and uh, positive about life and things. And you know, Star Trek allowed him to travel all over the world, allowed him to buy a home, you know, got to do all kinds of stuff that he wouldn't have done if he wasn't on that show for seven years, you know. I think that's kind of the perfect connection to this next story I'd like to ask you about, because we actually spoke to Armin a few months ago as well. And I asked him about this, too. So now I'm excited to get your take, uh, your your side of the story, if you will. So I remember back when Deep Space Nine first came on the air, uh, you guys went and did the Regis Kathy Lee show and 
Armin went, and he went first as Quark, and then he returned later on in the show as Armin Shimmerman. So I'd love to hear the story about being on Regis and Kathy Lee. Okay, so did he tell you how it happened? Uh, I, I might, he might have told us a little bit about that, but let's just take it from the top. Okay, so there was a publicity company that did the publicity for the show, and um, I was talking to this young lady, and I can't remember her name, and she was just talking about uh, appearances in general, like going to go on. So this is the first year we were together. And I said, um, what if Armin did a talk show where he comes out as Quark at the top of the show and then they interview him or talk to him and then he leaves the show and then I take off all his makeup and then he comes back as Armin Shimmerman at the end of the show. And she said, oh, that's a great idea. And I said, yeah. So that way, wherever we go, I can go on a trip because that's what I'm thinking. I'm not thinking about, you know, like anyone's career or anything. So um, she says, well, you know, they didn't call them showrunners back then. The Like the manager, the stage manager of the show of Regis and Kathy Lee. She said, I think he's a huge Star Trek fan, especially Deep Space Nine. And one of his favorite characters is Quark. And I said, OK. So that's the guy you got to pitch this idea to. Well, anyway, so the story, as the story goes that I remember, because I don't know what Armin remembers, but because um, it's all about me, you see. So anyway, so um, the guy says yes, and then we do that. So we go, and Armin uh, was so nice. He had a first-class seat. I had a coach seat. Uh, he told me he didn't like to fly, and he usually sleeps the whole way uh, you know, to New York. And he gave me his first class seat. So I got to sit back then. This is pre 911. I mean, you know, 911. And um, they didn't care. The stewardesses were really nice. I got to sit in first class, you know, flying to New York. And he sat in coach. And because of the anonymity of being in that prosthetic, no one knew who he was. You know, no, it was the first year of the show. someone could possibly recognize his voice, but most people didn't. He said that was one of his favorite things about being Quark is that he could go anywhere and wouldn't be um, like bombarded by fans that he could have a nice dinner with his wife going out on the town or something. And he could stay anonymous, you know? So we went on Regis and Kathy Lee and that happened. And then Regis was really nice. And um, uh, I think, Uh, He was the one who called me out to come on the show and actually come out um, and talk about the makeup a little bit. I was shocked at that. I wasn't expecting it. So I was like, uh, not, uh, I was fairly flustered. I remember, you know, but it was a great time. And then my cousins and my uncle, they lived in New Jersey. So I got them uh, tickets to come on the show. So I got to see them. So, you know, my whole purpose was to go to New York because I wanted to go to New York you know, that kind of thing. So it turned out to be a really great thing, you know, and it was really fun. So I got to, you know, go on Regis and Kathy Lee. So Armin told us that really the big thing was the fact that you guys were able to actually get that makeup off in an hour. And he said, you know, as cool as a thing that was to see on TV, uh, you guys also were basically kind of rushing the process. And by the end of it, he was super woozy. So do you remember what it was like basically getting him as Armin and then getting him out of the Quark makeup? Yeah, because he was woozy from the amount of alcohol we had to use. Like I said before, when you go into any kind of prosthetic makeup like that and 
you know, to get the pieces off, we use um, medical alcohol. So even though there's like a little fan, the fumes make you all like kind of, you know, spinny. We don't usually, you can use a type of oil and this other material called isopropyl meristate as a remover, but it ruins the piece. So we try to save the head. You At that time, they uh, for a television show, they wouldn't do a new head every time he worked, but they would do a new face, you know, because it was easier to do a new face. But um, yeah, so we had to get the makeup off as soon as possible. And of course, I diluted the glue a lot, but it wasn't still, it, he had it on less than, uh, you know, 30 minutes and we had to take it all off. So that's why it was really hard. So that's the part he remembers. And I have to uh, agree that was, you know, I remember all the fumes, you know, and then you, it's really weird because when you do makeup effects, you use uh, certain chemicals and things, or you might pull someone's skin, the actor's skin, or, you know, um, any little anomaly like that. And you're always apologizing. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And I used to laugh like the whole time you're working on someone, especially when you're removing the makeup. If you remove makeup off a woman's face and they, we have that fine follicular hair because men shave, right? So women don't, they have these tiny, 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 small hairs. And when you pull that, when you're trying to get the prosthetic piece off, it's extremely painful you know, and, um, you're constantly apologizing. So it, it's, uh, interesting. So Karen, uh, for the rest of this interview, I wanted to focus on a few of the Star Trek episodes that you either were nominated for or won uh, Emmy award. And, uh, the one we're going to start with here is from next generation and had a lot of makeup on. Uh, that was the cost of living. This is a, a actually an Alexander Roshenko and Luxana Troy centric episode, which is crazy to say, but, uh, yeah. What do you remember about the cost of living? So the biggest thing about cost of living that I remember are the mud baths and all the different characters in there. And I remember Majel being in the mud baths. I remember um, uh, Worf's son, Brian, and I can't remember his last name either, uh, him being in the mud baths. These two characters called the arguers were in there. It was a man and woman. They were the same race and all they did was argue with each other. And I did one of those makeups. Um, I did the female. And um, I remember Ken Diaz did the male. There was a belly dancer that was a full body makeup. And there was four of us that did that. It was myself, Tanya McComas. And, uh, and I can't remember the other two people that did that. And then also there was a fire eater and Richard Snell helped me with the fire eater makeup because it was, it looked like a upside down um, spade that came to a point with different colors and there was glitter on there. And then they did a CGI fire eating thing. And then um, uh, a guy with a big beard that I knew they did out of yak here. And I can't remember who did that uh, makeup, but there was a lot of different makeups on there and a uh, different variety. So I know that was like one of the main things why it won an Emmy because it just wasn't, all Klingons, all Vulcans. Well, and plus you had the all the staff makeup artists, Mike Westmore, and I think at the time Jerry Quist and uh, June Haymore Westmore and Gil Moscow. They were all like regular staff makeup artists on the show, and they were doing all their characters. Like June did Deanna Troy's makeup and did a beautiful job on Marina. 
And um, then, and she also did Patrick Stewart. And then, you know, then, you know, I'm like the added makeup artist, like the, everybody else were coming on and we're doing all the background prosthetic stuff and any kind of weird thing that the regular crew can't um, uh, do everyone on every show. So that's how we always get involved. And I remember um, I was, uh, it was weird. I was at uh, like the local mall and Mike Westmore was there. um, And he goes, Oh, hi, Karen. How are you? And I was with my uh, uh, friends and I go, hi, Mike, how's it going? He goes, Oh, by the way, I put your name on the Emmy nomination for, um, you know, TNG. And I went, Oh, uh, okay, thanks. I was kind of in shock and really, I go, oh, you know, you didn't have to do that. You know, like I didn't know much about it, but I thought that was really nice. He goes, oh no, you did a lot of good work, you know? And he said, I, if you work the majority of the day, so that it was like seven days of shooting, um, sometimes eight, if you did four out of seven days, Mike would put your name on the Emmy nomination. Uh, especially if you were doing a featured character, not just like far background or something. He was really good that way about helping to give people uh, get credit for stuff and, um, you know, getting awards. Yeah. That's really, really generous of him, especially for considering, you know, it is a team contribution kind of effort here. It's not just one person doing everything. And that's great that it's, it's recognized that way. Yeah. And back then you could have a large group nowadays. It's, you know, you're only allowed so many people on the, nomination list but what do you do when you have something like that or um like even now uh star trek discovery humongous makeup uh things uh also picard same thing you know and movies same thing you know like the grinch that was a humongous like 80 makeup and hair people (laughs) kind of thing doing stuff all the time so you know what do you do well you know, it's just the way it goes, you know, it, and like I said before, and I'll reiterate it all the time. It's a job, you know, you're not supposed to be, well, supposedly you're not doing it for the glory. I'm a worker who's helping somebody else. It's I, I'm not Rick Baker, uh, nor will I ever be, you know, I'm not the person getting the job like as the main person and I'm not doing the main actor. I'm doing background or auxiliary actors, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I'm happy, you know, my pay is good. It, it's great to be uh, noticed and get an accolade for your work, especially from your peers. You know, that's uh, pretty fantastic. But, you know, the pay is what, you know, we do it for. I mean, if we did it because we just love it and, and would do it, you know, for the art of it and there's no pay, then I think we'd have to have our heads examined because it's a lot of hard work, you know, and you actually have to learn something, you know, you have this uh, uh, expertise. Some people call it a trade or whatever you want to call it. But, um, you know, it's not just me uh, raking the yard kind of thing. But I really, uh, I thought of it as a job, you know, especially after I had my daughter, I really thought of it as a job, you know, more so before my, life and my career and everything who I thought I was, was tied up into that makeup effects thing. So after I had um, my daughter, Allison, uh, and saw, you know, how fantastic it was to be able to create this human being, you know, everything else goes to the wayside. It's really weird. I can't explain it more than that, but 
um, things were not as important as they were before, you know, like having a family became more important. So let's jump into another episode that you did. This was your first DS9 award and nomination, and that was for the season one episode, Captive Pursuit, which is all about O'Brien befriending Tosk the alien. Uh, what did you do in that episode? Did you work on Tosk? Well, um, no, I didn't work on Tosk. Um, that was a great makeup. I think it was uh, Craig Reardon and um, uh, could have been Dean Jones helping Craig Reardon, but I think Craig Reardon was the main makeup artist. Um, I mean, I did Quark, which was part of the package of putting everything forward and then whatever other uh, makeups, because Mike would have, he called it the battle plan. And um, he would uh, say, okay, so first you're going to do Quark and then you're going to do this character and then you're going to do this character or flip it around. Quark doesn't come in till tomorrow. So today you're going to do this character and this character. And then he would basically tell us, you know, how he wanted us or who he wanted us to work on and how to get things done and be more efficient because he had done it for so long, you know, and that was the Westmore battle plan. So um, we were, because I was already part of like the main uh, makeup artist that I was put on that uh, ticket the first season because I was doing uh, one of the main characters who happened to be Quark. You also were part of the team that got nominated and won for Distant Voices, which was the Alexander Siddig centric episode, which had a lot of old age makeup. Uh, was that the same kind of thing where you were working on Armin and then you were just kind of like part of that group? Yeah, I didn't do any of the old age stuff. I think um, Alexander Siddig, uh, which is funny to say because I didn't meet him as Alexander Siddig. I met him as Siddig El Fadil, which I still call him Siddig. But, um, you know, I think his makeup was done by Scott Wheeler. And but it was the same kind of thing. You know, we had all these other characters, plus Quark was a central character in that episode. So it became like I got uh, on that nomination. And the next generation one, honestly, was the most exciting, but it was really exciting to be a part of Captive Pursuit. And then the Emmys were right after I had my daughter. And um, it was not as exciting as the previous two Emmys. And since I had my daughter, it was, it was really uh, strange, you know, in the sense that I just had a baby at the end of June and the beginning, end of August, June, July, it's like th uh, three, two months. Yeah. June, July, August, two months later, I'm at the Emmys, but it was like, oh, okay, so yes, it's exciting, but wasn't exciting is just giving birth to this human being thing, person, you know? So um, that Emmy Award wasn't uh, as fun or exciting as the first two. The first one, of course, your first time ever doing anything is always very thrilling. And then the first time for Deep Space Nine was really great, you know, because that was Quark. And it's from the way it sounds, Quark was basically like your favorite person to work with in the makeup chair. So I'm kind of curious, you know, of all the folks you worked with, whether it was guest stars or other people on the show, uh, who were maybe some of the folks who just really did not enjoy the makeup process? That didn't enjoy it? Yeah. Oh, uh, the only person I have to tell you, stunt men <laughs> don't like to get on prosthetic makeup that I know of. And uh, Dennis Madalone, who was the stunt coordinator, he would say, can't you heat up that glue? 
you know, because it was cold because it had Freon, this liquid in it. And it was ice cold. And if, in the morning, you're in early and stuff. And, you know, and um, I thought it was funny because he would squirm a lot in the chair, like, uh, you know, like, you need to sit still because we can get this in your eyes or whatever. And um, most actors were really good about sitting still because that's what they do and following direction because that's what they do. And, um, you know, really didn't have uh, much of a problem with, um, you know, actors getting the makeups on. I mean, if you were Bajoran, you got this little nose thing, you know, uh, compared to a Cardassian who had a forehead and had cheeks and then had jowls and had ears and had, you know, uh, shoulder pieces. And uh, it was a pretty lengthy makeup. And then you had to pax out everything and then paint everything. So on their regular skin and uh, and then they had to have a wig. And so you had to make sure that the pieces covered their own hairline. And then, you know, there was a lot of um, uh, steps to try to turn them into these characters. It wasn't just like, you know, we're going to do a pullover Halloween mask and, you know, your Freddy Krueger kind of thing. So um, it was a lot. One of my favorite, though, was Guldicott. For whatever reason, his regular makeup couldn't do his makeup. So Westmore asked me to do his makeup, and I said, sure. So I remember him, you know, and uh, forgive me, Mark, if if this embarrasses you. But um, I remember him coming in, and I'm there, and I have all the pieces. Everything's prepped, and uh, he comes in the trailer, and uh, he looks around, and he just sees me and he said, um, are you doing my makeup? And I said, yep. And he said, he's looking around. Um, have you done it before? And I said, cause I'm a smart ass. I said, no, I've never done it before. Maybe you can uh, like talk me through it. And he went, hey, wait a minute, you know, like, I'm not going to be under, you know, have you do my makeup. I said, no, I've done it before, but um, I don't think you have to be, you know, too afraid. I've done a lot of prosthetic work. And, you know, this was already after, uh, you know, working on Next Generation, uh, winning the Emmy and all that stuff and being on Star Trek for a long time. He just, I just never had done his makeup. So after I was finished, he said, wow, you did a really good job. I said, oh, thank you. You know, and um, it was like he was shocked. But um, and then he told me he thought I did, you know, one of the best jobs he's ever seen is Goldicott, you know, because I did a lot of detail. And um, it was just funny because it was like that whole thing. We'll go back to, you know, being a girl when I was a kid. And well, I've always been a girl, but you know what I mean? Like wanting to be a boy because people look at you differently, you know, uh, for someone to come into the trailer and say, you know, are you doing my makeup? and you know, like, do you know what you're doing? You would never say that to if a man was standing there. So I always thought it was funny. So I always thought, uh, okay, then I'll just be my regular old smart ass self and try to make a joke out of it, you know. And most people are pretty good about things. But yeah, I was able to hold my own with everybody on the show. So that was good. Plus, I really love it. I love doing what I do or what I used to do. And, um, you know, I got great pleasure out of it. it. It's a great, it's like a a craft and a skill and an art all at the same time. So 
I used to tell people I can teach anyone how to do prosthetic makeup. I can teach you how to glue it on. It's a perfunctory thing. That's the part that's easy, gluing it on, knowing how to finesse it, knowing how to fit it, you know, because most of these pieces are, they're generic. You have to do a whole head cast, face cast, or whatever of an actor and make individual pieces that are made specifically for that actor um, for it to fit perfectly, right? So most of the stuff we do uh, is generic. And then unless you have like a really short forehead or really tall forehead or the you have a really long nose or a really big nose or your ears are huge or they're real tiny or your jaw is really square or you don't have much of a jaw and it comes to a point or if you have a double chin or, you know, any kind of weird anomaly to the face, you have to custom cut the prosthetic if it's a generic prosthetic. Otherwise, you know, it fits pretty well. So, you know, most prosthetic pieces that you come across, they fit 90 to 95% of the population out there. And it's only someone whose face is, uh, you know, different. If my nose is more bulby and it's the piece is made for a thinner nose, then I have to be able to cut out what we call like skive out the inside of the prosthetic piece to make room for my natural nose inside there kind of thing. Or if the edge, it, it didn't come out of the mold very well, but they still want us to use it. If it was like the thickness of a dime, you'd have to bevel cut it so for it to lay flat against the skin kind of thing. And then, you know, we have different philosophies about TV versus motion picture, but then high definition came into play and we were all screwed. So uh, it was just really different how we had to work. And what we used to say is, ah, it's okay. It's only television. We couldn't say that anymore. It's like, oh my God, it's high def. Holy crap. You know, now we really have to take more time to make it look better because high definition plus not only that, the audiences become more and more sophisticated. You can't do like, you know, uh, string and uh, tape kind of thing. You really have to do uh, computer generate and you got to watch out. I mean, perfect example. I worked on uh, Polar Express uh, motion capture, right? All the big production is post-production because it's all done in the computer, right? The um, CGI part. And um, by the time Polar Express came out, it looked really stiff because exponentially it took a little over two years for it to come out. They shot it. And then two years later, post-production, by the time it came out, what is being shot and coming out then, you know, is already better than what we were shooting two years earlier. And it happens, you know, that way. Cause like I also did Beowulf. And so if you look at the, uh, animation between Polar Express and Beowulf, it's night and day. The only the time is only eight years. That's not very long, but in the computer world, it's a it's a long time. It's a millennium's worth of time because everything is it jumps up exponentially because you know, like they say, the moment you buy your computer, it's out of date because they're already working on the next two years, you know, models that are coming out. Yeah. 
So, Karen, as we wrap up this interview today, you know, I just want to ask you again, you did so much work with Armin Shimmerman. Uh, you guys, I'm sure I must have had like an amazing relationship, great chemistry to work together in that capacity for so long. Uh, do you, got, you have any memorable stories about him besides, of course, that Regis and Kathleen one we already talked about? Yeah, you know, um, Armin really just liked having the hand makeup on and getting his nails done. So, you know, there would be times in the script that, you know, he it would only be like from the neck up or something that they're doing a close up shot. So there was this one incident that happened where he said um, in the script, it said, then he raises his right hand to pick up the goblet and, you know, takes a drink or whatever the scene was. And he says, just do the right hand. I said, no, I have to do both hands. No, it says in the script right hand, I pick it up with my right hand. You're only going to see the right hand. And I said, uh, I'm going to tell you, if we only do the right hand, it's going to be the left hand that the director decides to use. And I'm going to have to run in and it's going to look like I didn't do my job. I didn't finish the job. So I swear to God, Karen, it's just going to be the right hand. It says so in the notes in the script, it's the right hand. And I said, okay, you're going to owe me if it turns out to be he needed the left hand also. And then from that moment on, we're going to do both hands all the time, no matter what, because I don't want to ever be caught, like not, you know, looking like I didn't finish my job. So we go in on set. And of course the director says, then you pick up the goblet with your left hand. And I just start laughing. And he said, I am so sorry. And I said, okay, it's going to be a few minutes because now I have to do his left hand. But we laughed. That was so funny. And he would have sworn. He said, I swear it's going to the right hand. It says right here. And then when the uh, director said that, I just cracked up because it was funny. But then I he allowed me to do both his hands all the time, even if they weren't in the shot, you know, because you never know. Because things change all the time once that you're on the set. And then, you know, the director wants to do whatever he wants to do. So. So that was a, that was a good story. I loved working with Armin. I I missed him. I didn't see him for a very long time, and then, um, you know, I saw him again a couple years ago. Uh, yeah, a little over twenty years. And um, when he called me, it was probably about eight months before. Uh, the job. And um, I said, yeah, sure. I'd love to do that. And he said, but I said, I don't have a head or a face. Like, what do we do? He goes, I have, I have one in my garage. <laughs> I said, okay. And then I actually went to my garage and I looked and I found a bag of faces in, in a box and they were, I had kept them pretty pristine. So I was able to pick one out that was really good. So all I did was clean them up and then we were able to use them. And then there is a, like a, a guy did a, um, a time-lapse of the makeup. Cause it did, t I thought, ah, oh, we haven't done this in so long. It took, it actually took three hours, but he also, we had people in the room that were asking questions and stuff as we were doing the makeup. It was part of this like behind the scenes thing that you could watch a court get into makeup and ask questions and stuff. It was really fun. You know, That's really cool. and, yeah. uh, it allowed me to go uh, to England, hadn't been there in a long time. And, you know, Armin's always taken really great care of me because he said I took really great care of him. So it was a very wonderful mutual relationship and um, really all time my favorite actor to work with on anything. And I worked with a lot of actors before and um, but he's just such a nice person. 
So thank you so much, Matthew, for everything. Oh, thank you. I have fun. I just love the fact that you have a story that somewhere in the middle of it has. So I've got a box of faces in my garage. Like no one else could say that except for you. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's weird. You talk to any makeup effects artist and you ask them, so what do you have in your garage in that box? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, all kinds of old stuff. I mean, and people don't realize that stuff gets brittle and it falls apart. It will like dissolve, you know, like disintegrate. And um, a lot of the makeups, because uh, rubber mask grease has castor oil on it, it goes rancid. It smells bad. It looks bad. Um, but it still was something that was used at that time. So, you know, like that part of history or that part of your life that you hold on to a souvenir is, um, you know, sparks that memory pretty strongly. So a bag of faces in a box. <laughs> That's very cool. Anyway. Well, Karen, thank you so much for giving us all well, your time you. today here. And, uh, you know, we didn't even get a chance to talk about some of the movie stuff or even Voyager Enterprise. So hopefully we'll do it again sometime. But before we close completely here for today, uh, final question for you. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Wow. Um, I think the best part of being a part of the Star Trek universe is uh, I've met all kinds of people. You know, uh, unfortunately, I never met uh, Gene Roddenberry, but I did meet Majel and Rod, you know, their son, and um, uh got to meet all kinds of actors and directors, um, became friends with all kinds of makeup artists, got to do all kinds of things that I never in a million years would have ever thought I would end up doing as a career job. Um, uh, working on Star Trek, uh, it bought my first home, you know, gave me a big down payment on my first home. And, um, made me realize that you can work really hard and get to where you want to go uh, and still have fun and um, be a part of like history in the making without knowing it. Like I didn't purposely think, oh, I'm going to be a part of this and I'll be part of history and stuff. But it's weird when uh, someone comes up to you and says, hey, aren't you Karen Westerfield? And didn't you do Quark's makeup? on Deep Space Nine and I know all your work and it's even surprising for you to tell me all the stuff off IMDB. And, you know, I have to look at my own resume sometimes and say, oh yeah, I worked on that. I forgot, you know, that kind of stuff. It's pretty interesting. So uh, I, I think it's a great career. It's a great uh, job. And uh, I don't think I would have ever changed anything you know, um, it would have been great to work longer. I retired early because of arthritis, but, um, you know, I really had a, it was a great ride as they say, you know, I had a great voyage, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, I do it all again. It's really fun, you know? So thank you so much, Matthew. I appreciate, uh, all the questions and, uh, what you're doing to keep Star Trek alive. And um, there's a lot of people out there that love Star Trek. So it's wonderful. Oh, thank you. I'm glad I get to be a little part in telling your story out there. Cause like I said, at the start of this, I couldn't find that much out there about you, even though you've done so much work. So, you know, I'm happy that now if someone wants to look up Karen Westerfield, they've got a real definitive place to learn a lot more about you and what you've done. So thank you so yeah. much for all the time today, sharing all these great stories and hopefully we can do it again sometime. I'd love to have you okay. on again. Chat Anytime. I got nowhere to go. I'm in a pandemic. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We all are. So Karen, yeah. thank you so much. Uh, okay, have a great day. You, and of course, live long and prosper. All right. You too. Bye-bye. And that was our chat with Karen Westerfield. 
She was, of course, a lot of fun, and I think I need to get her and Thomas back together for a future episode. What do you guys think? On this episode, and really almost every episode where the makeup application is discussed in depth, we spoke about Michael Westmore. Michael was the makeup designer, artist, and supervisor across all of the second wave of Star Trek shows, as well as the TNG movies. He was nominated for 24 Emmys, winning five of them during his time working on the series, equating to at least one nomination per year that Star Trek was in production during that era. He's also been nominated four times for an Oscar, winning once in 1985 for his work on Mask. While Michael's career makeup began in 1961 at Universal Studios, his family began all the way back in 1917, when his grandfather George started the first makeup department in Hollywood at the Selig Polyscope Company. Before then, actors applied their own makeup, and George set out to change that. Makeup continued to be a family affair as all six of George's sons went into the industry, and then many of his grandsons, including Michael, followed in his footsteps. The Westmore family story is epic, to say the least, but that's truly going to be a tale for another day. So that wraps up this week's episode of Trek Untold. Thank you so much for checking it out this week. Please make sure that you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, at Trek Untold. It's the best way to get updates on guests, check out all the memes and other things that we're posting, and interact with myself and other Star Trek fans. If you'd like to support this podcast, go ahead and check out patreon.com slash trekuntold and become a subscriber to the show. Or check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to check out some of our merchandise. If you've been enjoying Trek Untold, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. Leaving ratings, reviews, and comments are things that all help this podcast grow, and they'll cost you nothing but a few seconds of your time. Doing things like that, or even telling your friends or other Star Trek fans about the stuff you've heard on the show and making sure they know about us are huge helps to keeping Trek Untold growing. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. Go ahead and check them out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you'd like to send us some feedback about this episode, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked on the show, go ahead and send me an email at trekuntold at gmail.com. And of course, thanks to listeners like you for choosing Trek Untold and making it your weekly Star Trek podcast. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network, and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.